This is Archive Atlanta, episode 250, Blantown. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I could not be more excited about today's episode because it's a topic I have wanted to cover since day one, and it's also a topic that I get a lot of messages and questions and requests about. This week, I had the honor to sit down with Dr. Raina Gittens-Wheeler to ask her about her research of Blantown, which is a historically African-American neighborhood on the west side of Atlanta that dates back to the 1870s. We talk about neighborhood history, the wrong history, annexation, zoning, and developers' efforts to rebrand the west side of Atlanta. Lots of hot topics. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Um, my name is Raina Gittens-Wheeler. I am a writer and an active scholar of rhetoric and cultural studies. I am New York born, but consider myself a pure Floridian from Lauderdale Lakes, Florida in South Florida, whatever it's pure basically Floridian New York, means. Though. Right. I mean, Fort Lauderdale is like New York. It so. is. That is true. Lots of New York <laughs> transplants, including my parents. Um, and I've been living in Atlanta now for over 10 years. So I also consider myself to be an Atlantan. Did you go to school here? For grad school. So I went to Georgia State for my PhD program. Okay. And how did you get here to Oglethorpe? So after my PhD, I ended, I graduated in 2020, right in the middle of quarantine, COVID, all of that. But um, at the time, I was on the market for a job and interviewed here at Oglethorpe right before everything shut down. So right in January, I think everything shut down in February. And I got my offer a week before. No. Before, like, everything shut right. down. <laughs> wow. Right. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. And I was, like, so thankful because so many people were graduating at that time and not able to do their interviews or having to figure out how to do interviews online. Yeah. So I mean, you did have to go out. to teaching online, though, right right away or no? I like, didn't. Well, yes. When I started at Oglethorpe, the whole first year was online. Which, so, I mean, that's mm-hmm. quite the adjustment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But Correct. now we're in person, so we're sitting in the library, which mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with this campus, by the way. If I could go back to school, if I could be 18 again, I would come here. Um, and I want to kind of want to give everybody this idea of how we found each other. So I have gotten so many requests and emails over the last five years about Blantown. Can you do an episode about Blantown? And I've always wanted to. And this factors into our discussion later. Very little information. Um, all I kept running into was the artist, you know, that has mm-hmm. a studio there and we'll talk about him. And I just didn't feel like comfortable. You know, I was like, I, I don't have the capacity to really research this. There's nothing online. Um, and then somebody from from here wrote me a message on Instagram and was like, well, do you know Eli? I'm like, well, of course I know Eli. You know, I've been mm-hmm. here a couple of times. And like, but do you know this other professor that has done some Blantown research and put two and two together that you were the one that put in the mar- uh, marker slash mm-hmm. signs that have gone up. And so we had coffee and the rest is history. So yes. Yes, <laughs> I, during coffee, I asked you like 900 questions. <laughs> You're like, I do not have my notes in front of me. Um, but I, I love, th- so I love the story of how you got to it because it, it was similar where you also kind of Googled it. Or, I mean, you had heard of it, 
Googled it and you were like, why is there two sentences on Wikipedia? Mm -hmm. So tell us your origin story of how you get to being interested in Blantown. For sure. So it was, I believe, 2017. So the summer of 2017. And I had just transitioned into my PhD program. So I was a year at Georgia State at that point. Uh, Transitioned out of corporate and said, you know, I need some new photos for this new shift in life and identity I've had. And so I was just trying to do a photo shoot, had a friend of mine coming up from Florida, um, Bop uh, is her nickname, and she recommended we take the photos at the Goat Farm Art Center. And the Goat Farm Art Center, for the list- listeners, is was like an old cotton gin factory erected in the 1880s, and it has a lot of ruins that are there. And so people would they had art studios, people would rent out and people would always also go there for photos, which is what I was doing. But I was also really interested in, at that point in time, I'd been taking some classes. So I was interested in place and where am I? What does this location mean? And so I looked it up, just did a Wikipedia search really. And it reading about the Goat Farm Art Center and it said it was in Blantown. And I knew the location, so it's off Huff Road. And I did not know it as Blantown, though. I would have just called it Midtown. Yeah, or, at that time. West Midtown. or West Midtown. <laughs> as, exactly. As we <laughs> exactly. And so I just clicked on the link that said Blantown, and it had a very short few sentences that were there. And I don't remember all the exact words, but the basic summary was that after the Civil War, that this former slave, Felix Bland, came to own this land in this area we now call Blantown. He'd been owned by a white woman named Viney Bland, and when slavery ended, she deeded him her property and paid for him to get an education at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. But then, having not paid his property taxes, he lost the land in the 1870s. So very quickly. Yeah, like five years. Right. He didn't have it for long. And soon after, Bob Booth obtains the property and develops it into a residential suburb. And so this is the story on Wikipedia. And there's also sources for it. So there had been newspapers and even books who had published this same kind of incorrect story over and over and over again so you're like your spidey sense went off right i mean you were just like this this why why is not more written about it or you just felt like it, it was off right well what made it really off to me was first that well it said that the namesake really was Felix Bland, the black land owner. And well, one, if he only had it for such a short time, why would it be named after him? And two, we're in Atlanta. I feel, you know, Atlanta is like known as the black Mecca. If something was named for a black person in Atlanta, I was just like, there should be more history on this. At least this was my kind of immature thoughts on historians and all the work that that had been done in Atlanta and on Atlanta history at the time. And so I was like, let me go look into this. And so I just went home, looked on uh, Ancestry.com, did some searches there. And the first thing I find, I looked up Viney Bland. I found her census first and it said she was a mulatto. <laughs> not the white right. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, probably not that woman that was the slave owner, right? And then I see, and to corroborate this, the same Viney that they're talking about, there's a list of children and one of them being Felix Bland. And so Felix was her son. And so immediately I'm like, okay, this story is wrong. (laughs) I have a week off from school. (laughs) 
let me go figure out this mystery. And we talked about this. You, because I want to know for people out there, like, how do you do this research? Mm-hmm. When it's not available online, you know, not, and things aren't digitized, mm-hmm. tell us where you had to go. Well, Ancestry.com for the census stuff was great. Then Georgia Archives. For it's in Morrow. It is in Morrow. Yeah. And these are de- deeds that have, you know, that they are written, a lot of them in um, cursive scripts. Oh, and you're the trying unreadable to- cursive. Right. Yeah. I-, I don't know what it is. I cannot read 1880s exactly. cursive at all. And yeah. you're like trying to. Your eyes are bleeding. This. Right. Yes. <laughs> trying to pick out as many words as you can from them. And so, Georgia Archives, then I have to go to Fulton County Deed for more recent to 1900s deeds. So, those were kind of spending hours in these deed rooms and trying to put you, the puzzle pieces yeah, together. You, you basically did like almost like the way title searches are done when you buy a house Mm -hmm. you did like an extensive title search of this piece of land right and so before we go because i realized we didn't get super specific the area of blantown that especially you researched and the original area Mm -hmm. is what today in atlanta so the blantown that we talk about today is in between chattahoochee avenue uh, marietta boulevard howell mill and huff that's a larger, though, description than it was historically. Correct. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, what people would have recognized at that time, they were calling it the Negro Settlement, and they would have recognized it roughly, because this is looking at deeds again in that weird cursive font and trying to figure out what they're saying, but roughly, I believe it would have been between what we now call Fairmont, Ashby, Morris Avenue, and Huff Road. And this is more, so if you're coming from Hal Mill, right, mm-hmm. on Huff, yes, it's like the several streets sort of over there in that little quadrant. Right, so if you're on, if you're coming from Hal Mill, you'd be traveling west on Huff Road. Okay. Okay, so you, so you, you know, research this to death, and what do you discover? After going through this research, I think the early part, so I went... Because you did land lottery, right? I mean, you went from land lottery white owner, mm-hmm. and, and do we know that first white person that got that land? So the earliest, this is the one that I didn't actually tell you this, oh. because... Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm being shocked in real yeah, time. Yeah, so this is going to be a shocker for you. So I looked back at my notes to prepare for our interview, and I was like, oh my gosh, the first person I have listed here is the owner of this lot was Jonathan Norcross. <gasps> no! Yes! Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. Oh my gosh. So if you and if you guys don't, I think Castlebury Hill episode, but I've talked about him a million times. Oh, okay. Because he was the moral party guy, right? And mm-hmm. he was like maybe mayor or fourth, fourth mayor. The fourth mayor fourth of mayor. Atlanta. Yeah, and he was the he was the head of the moral party. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that was like giving the apples and candy I joke when I talk about the early elections. That's wild. Yes. So that's very early. I mean, the probably one of the first waves of ridding the Muskogee from their land. Yes. Jonathan very Norcross. early. Yes. Wow. Super early. Because Jonathan Norcross was born in like eighteen oh eight. He was here yes. like eighteen. 50 or something okay now does he use it for anything or it's just his whole this part i don't know um so if this is the same jonathan norcross presumably i don't know exactly what he was using it for i don't even know if this was land that he was living on in 1869 it says that he actually sells the land to a francis a kimball for 40 dollars. and francis a kimball also bore uh purchased a portion of this full lot from alvin k siago and then 
then the next sale is to Samuel Bland. So Kimball sells four acres of the land to Samuel Bland in 1872 for $200. So Samuel Bland and Viney Bland. So Samuel Bland is actually from Virginia. Okay. And Viney Bland, whose full name is actually Lavinia, so Viney for short, was born in North Carolina. Okay. But they... It presumably moved to Georgia together. Um, Where that comes from is that their eldest son, Felix, was born in Georgia. So to buy a piece of land for, you said, $200? Yes. Was that, like, an exorbitant amount? Like, were they considered, you know what I mean? Did they have more money than black people generally had in that time? Or So, yes, this would be um, considerable, particularly for, so we're talking about Civil War ends 1865, and Samuel Bland's able to purchase land in 1872 um, for people that may have been making 10 cents a day (laughs) for work that they were doing. So Samuel Bland and Viney Bland may have been making more money. So what we do know from the census data is that Samuel Bland was a plasterer, and that Viney Bland was a midwife. And I love the story that didn't you find accounts in like a, mm-hmm. a white woman's diary that like she births so many babies in the area? Yes. So it's actually... Was um, it Sarah Huff's? So not the Sarah Huff story okay. yet. Um, so this was actually some research that I think a school teacher did in the early 1900s called like Cook... At this time, this was Cook District. And so she had done like history of Cook District kind of research. And so she writes about Blantown and Bland, Viney Bland is mentioned there and she's says um the white neighbors really loved viney she birthed a lot of their babies so amazing yes wow okay so so they're live they buy this land Mm -hmm. and they have children there because we know felix is born in atlanta correct how many children do they have they had by the time they purchased in 1872 they had six kids and i don't know that they had any after after that time so six kids all together charlie jesse richard felix cherry and oscar And we talked about this also, this land was really their homestead. Like there Mm -hmm. was one house. Yes. They were not, there was not other houses. They were, you know, this was the land that they lived on. So they had four acres. So they possibly had more than one building on the land. And at this time, other black people start moving into the area. So if you're imagining this, this space, it would have been for people who are familiar with Huff Road, a lot of people talk about Huff Hill, right? And and that's where Sarah Huff comes in because of the Huff house and her book and her story of of being a a young girl through the Civil War. And so anyway, on Huff Road, if you travel from Howell Mill west on Huff Road, it's kind of like this incline. Yeah. Now in a car, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. You're like, oh, this is a hill. Right. So that's what you would call Huff Hill. But the area that the that the Blands were buying, as well as other black people moving into the area were uh, being allowed to purchase, was at the bottom of the hill. So this uh, is where you get tracks. that term, the bottoms. Yes. Yeah. I always say that it's like people don't realize that the land black people were allowed to live mm-hmm. on was considered undesirable by white people you know they Mm -hmm. wanted to live where there was either a spring Mm -hmm. or high so that sewage doesn't flow into their houses so that explains why probably they were able to buy that land Mm -hmm. and then black families are sort of flocking to this like hey this guy over here owns four acres let's all start to move in this area yes that's exactly what happens um so it's not the most environmentally friendly space but it's the space they're allowed to be in you have more people actually moving from um the carolinas and from 
Virginia south to this area. And I know that sounds really weird. After the Civil War, people would be like, yes. well, why, why are people moving further south? So basically what's happening at this point in time is you're in a period of reconstruction. In Atlanta, you have the railroads building up. And so the, there was a, a railroad building up right there. So the Seaboard Airline Railroad was there. And so a lot of these people are coming for jobs near the railroad. The second thing is, is after reconstruction, there were union troops in the area. And so they provided a bit of protection and safety before, you know, things, you know, race codes and all that stuff before Reconstruction ends, there was some level of safety by having the Union troops there. And something to kind of corroborate that is that Samuel Bland has, there's actual documentation that comes up that he was a member of the Freedmen's Bank. He had a bank account with the Freedmen's Bank. Wow. You found those records? Yes. That was really cool. That is so cool. So it all kind of starts to tie together in that way that he was working with the Freedmen's Bank, maybe able to save up some funds and purchase this land. So a lot of things you have to kind of create the story because it's all based off of these yeah, documents. Yeah. But that's kind of what I imagine was going on. And so Felix then grows up and built a house on this land also. Is that so, accurate? What ends up happening is at some point, Samuel, the father, deeds all of the land to his wife, Viney Bland. I don't know exactly when Samuel Bland died. I couldn't find his death certificate. But at some point before his death, he deeded the land to his wife. So it's primarily in her name. And she does a lot of things with this land. So what's interesting here is both Samuel and Lavinia are written in the census as not being able to read nor write. So it's interesting some of the stuff she ends up doing. So before Felix Bland kind of gets into the story, Viney Bland invested 12 stocks of to the Southern Mutual Building and Loan Association. So she was investing. What? Yes. That is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. And unfortunately, though, two years later, it looks like she had to pull out some portion of that those funds before the shares had matured. And so she loses a portion, this is how you find out about it, is that she lost a portion of the land to the Southern Mutual Building and Loan Association because she pulled out her stocks before they matured. She also sold a portion of the land to the Georgia Northern Railroad. Um, She sold some to Felix, also deeded some to Felix. Felix started buying some of his own land around it. So you can imagine here that you start to have kind of like a family that's buying more parcels around this original four acres, as well as other people moving into the area that also might be extended family that are also buying parcels. So you have a kind of very close-knit neighborhood that's starting to form. Okay. So Felix was doing well then, obviously, if he was buying land. What, Mm -hmm. What did he do again, his profession? So he is known as a reverend, a pastor so oh. i don't know if he was necessarily making money in that particular field but that was what is listed and so what time period are we now in like do we know mm-hmm. when viney dies so viney bland actually dies in 1914 before she dies in early 19 so 15 years before she dies almost she uh, deeds all of her land to Felix as well as some of her other children but primarily to Felix as the oldest and to her daughter cherry at this point in time, Blantown has really started to build up into a neighborhood, and you have 
three or four churches. I say three or four because if you know anything about churches, sometimes they have these weird splits. And we talked about this. It's like we don't like the way you right. do the offering, and so we're going to start our we're own We're going to start our own church, exactly, and they have a different name, but you're like, are they the same church still? So it's those weird things. But it was like three or four churches there, and Felix Bland was a pastor at one of those churches, and presumably, based off of the records, he was the pastor at Blandtown Christian Church. And he actually he ends up leaving his land to the church and so does his sister cherry she also leaves of the land to the church so the last known i guess owner of the church would have or sorry last known owner of any portion of the land the blands would have owned would have been the the church now there is a possibility that there's some other heirs cherry had some children but i haven't been able to track down yeah. that path yeah. so it would if anybody could also, also yeah figure that knows. one out <laughs> so but we talked we i think i asked you this none of the churches still stand right there are there were actually like i said three or four churches and so greater bethel african methodist episcopal church still exists just not in blantown and also St. Peter Baptist Church as well is the other one that exists just not in Blantown yes so Felix actually after he sells he actually sells that land to the church before he dies and he sells this land in 1916 he doesn't die till 1941 between that time about what 20 25 year period he's living in another area in Atlanta and so there is um, information about where he was living, names of people he was living with, but it's just unclear of if those Their were family members okay. or not. Yeah. So then is there kind of like another wave of people moving to Blantown? Mm-hmm. And then is that connected to the railroad? Is it like what what leads more people moving there? It's definitely that. Re- so people are moving because of the work. So it's the railroad, but also under other industries. Um, there's a, a rendering plant in the area. And so people are finding work within this space. Um, what we know from census data is we do have some information about the population size. Oh. So by the time of at least 1960, the neighborhood was occupied by 855 people. Okay. And these are primarily a black population. And 194 of these were occupied housing units that were owned. So this is where I start to believe that the lines of Blantown started to go beyond that original space that we would have called where the Blands originally purchased. Yeah, because that's right. a small Because <laughs> if you land. can imagine what we're talking about, 855 people wouldn't have fit in the small space that the Blands were originally talking about. But as this, as this area starts to expand and go beyond that original four acres that the Blands were in, you have at least uh, roughly 855 people living in. And that's 1950. Mm-hmm. By the, and, mm-hmm. and, and like we see even now, that area is so heavily industrial. Yes. Or it was, and I mean, probably the last five years, it's mm-hmm. starting to change. But um, but that added to why, again, people are, first, why black people are living there, mm-hmm. right? Because white people aren't going to want to live next to industrial zones, everything's zoned. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a whole separate episode. The right. zoning rules and, like, the environmental racism and all that stuff we talked about. Yes. Um, 
But how and when do we get to the urban renewal story? Okay, so let's get there. Yeah, because 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 you know, I mean, if you do drive on these streets today, mm-hmm. it is brand new townhouses and stuff. Yes. I mean, I think I'll probably ask you this later, but I think there's one original house left, or maybe two. Maybe two. Yes. Yeah. Which or is not or older. Older. <laughs> not, not even original. Not even original. Like maybe fifties right. or sixties. Yes. Which is really crazy to think. Mm-hmm. So, and I think people. I find that people new to Atlanta, what like they go to these areas and they think nothing was here before. Right. You know, oh, there, there must have just been nothing here. And it's like, no, no, there was things here. So let's discuss yeah. what happened. There was a lot of things here. So as we talked about the churches, they also had a school that these families had put their money together to pay for. So they paid for, um, they originally had the school within St. Peter's Baptist Church. And then they actually worked with the city to, bring in teachers or the and things of that nature so they're really trying to build up this neighborhood and then what occurs is so how do I describe this many many of your listeners are probably familiar with William B Hartsfield's um, the annexation fight for annexation in um, 1951-52 exactly so all this time that I've been talking about Blantown Blantown was unincorporated Atlanta and for unincorporated space in the early 1900s there's no running water no inside yep. toilets no, no electricity yes barely schools <laughs> exactly yep. yeah. it's not the nicest place to live and you're doing a lot of things on your own in 1952 Blantown gets incorporated and you would imagine oh now we get all these utilities and services this is going to be great but not quite So if you know the story of this incorporation, kind of what we know today is North Atlanta, prior to 1952, Atlanta would have been south of Midtown area. So William B. Hartsfield in the late 40s and 50s, he makes this big push for the people of Buckhead who had, um, because of integration happening in Atlanta, had started white flight. And so they were moving further north into Buckhead and Druid Hills. So he makes this big push for them to be annexed and approve of this annexation to be a part of the city of Atlanta. And so I pulled a short quote from his letter to uh, the citizens of Buckhead, where just one portion of it, uh, he says, our Negro population is growing by leaps and bounds. They stay right in the city limits and grow by taking more white territory inside Atlanta. (laughs) Cringeworthy. End quote. Yes. Wow. I, I don't think yes. I ever read that. Le- I knew mm-hmm. the information, but mm-hmm. I didn't read that. Yes. But he annexes Blantown, yes. but they were that wasn't the message. That for wasn't them. the plan. Exactly. So Blantown happens to be one of the northernmost black like oh. areas. And because it's kind of tucked in between white right. neighborhoods. Oh, so I see it what gets you're when he's able to annex Buckhead and all these other places north, Blantown comes with it. And he's trying to annex these areas because he really he needs white voters, right? He's losing his voting population. Yes. They're yes. all leaving Atlanta. He's like, hey, I need y'all to uh, actually be Atlanta now. So anyway, they get incorporated in 1952 and a new map gets created of Atlanta. And this map 
maps, similar, you know, redlining maps designates the areas that are black residential areas and areas that, you know, are safe to live, not yeah, so safe to yeah. live. Things safe, that safe to loan money, not safe to right, loan Right, exactly, exactly. Oh. And so they create this new map and Blantown is on it marked as a black residential area. So at this point, Blantown was zoned as residential. But by 1956, Blantown zoning had been switched from residential to industrial no. zoning. Yes. Wow. Like four years later. Just four years later. Didn't take long. Did you dive into that? Like, were there like, is there, are there documents related to that switch? Were people trying to fight it? So a lot of work was done by Professor Larry Keating. Oh, and this so is, he, okay. this is the part where he did a lot of work okay. on this piece. And I also looked into, uh, you can see Journal Constitution, newspaper articles yeah. and clippings of some of the things that were happening during this time. And so wh- one of the ways this zoning change happened was, I've, I've been telling you guys about how there were industries in the area. Um, business, already or historically. Already, yeah. exactly. And so they became, they started to act as the voice of this neighborhood with the city council and they pushed for an industrial zoning and uh, Larry Keating and his book talks about the Nottingham Chemical Company and a lot of things they did to kind of lead this charge and in some ways silencing the voice of the black residents that were literally living there oh my like I told gosh. you before at its height 855 people are living in this space but instead <laughs> industries and businesses are somehow being treated as people exactly I did not know any of this this is blowing my mind so the industry voice totally prioritized over the residents if you do look into newspaper articles at that time you'll find that the residents weren't quiet about this there is one lead resident azalea wharton who was trying to fight against it she was able to get a few council members on her side or at least thought she was. But then you find out, okay, they went to vote, but they didn't vote in our favor. She was trying to, and then even after the change happened, she continued to try to get it pushed back to residential, but it, it never happened. So how, do we even know how quickly then the residents leave or how, you know, with the, the houses get, start getting torn down? Like what's that process? So what happens when, uh, well, in this particular case with this industrial zoning, is it stipulated that residents could not repair their homes if the damage to them was above 50% of the property. In addition, no new residential construction could be placed in the area. So if repairs, for the most part, are prohibitive, if you can't fund them yourselves before it gets too bad, then you move. Because of this, from 1960 to 1990, the community population declined by 71%. Okay, say those dates again. From 1960 to 1990, so over this 30-year period, the community um, decreased by 71%. Wow. Wow. So that, that, that's you, that's what happens. So that's the effects of that zoning change right. and these rules of not being able to build a new house or even fix your house. Right, exactly. And I would say the added piece to this is because, well, before the 1950s, there wouldn't have been a lot of places for black people to move uh, to. Of course, but this I is say also this, after oh integration. God. I say this all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like even if you could 
by your own home as a right. black person. You were like, hey, you could live in four places. Right. You know, like it's, it's just that's the wildest part about people don't realize it. It's like you didn't have options. You didn't like, have a lot of options. Exactly. And especially for Blaintown, they're landlocked in mm-hmm. a sense. Exactly. So as time goes on during the 60s, 70s, 80s, more neighborhoods do open up to black people. So they find more places to move. So this also increases the the ability to move to other locations. So some residents move to at least just from speaking to a former resident, um, moved to like Southwest Atlanta areas. We spoke to um, one of the Southwest Atlanta residents who he actually just passed in the last four years. He was Johnny Lee Green. And it is his, he built a cinder block home there in the 1940s. And that's the one that's still standing. that's the one that's still standing. And you talked about this, right? It's the reason it's cinder block, which was rare. Mm -hmm. It's because he like one by one stole the cinder blocks or something from work. Like (laughs) he was was collecting them and then he was like, okay, cool, I'm going to build a foundation. Exactly. So So he worked at the railroad. Him and he and his his family, they worked at the railroad so they would just, you know, Bring a couple of people because otherwise people don't also realize that the building material is usually wood, not concrete, not cement. That's not going to last as long. Oh, wow. So this building's still standing because it's cinder block. And is this the art studio? Yep. Okay. That's the one. So if you go down to Blantown today, (laughs) you will see this building. And it's kind of hard to miss it because it doesn't look like any of the The new buildings that are in the area. And it is Gregor Turk's art studio. Okay. And that is, the again, the only name I ever saw associated with Mm -hmm. Blantown. And I and doesn't he have a big sign in the front, yes. which is awesome. So it is awesome. Had, did it go through a period where we weren't calling it Blantown? Like, did Atlanta forget its name, or was it like only the people that lived there knew it? Yes. So in general, so I talked to a few people who knew about the area in the early two thousands, and they just saw it as like this industrial zone. Oh. Like, they, so they knew Blantown, but to them, Blantown was like where the warehouses I don't, are. They didn't even call it Blantown. Oh. It was. Was just this industrial area, uh, you know, in the West. What people would have seen from, you know, talking to some people who were there in the, you know, early 2000s and before kind of the the new buildup is they would have seen a lot of outgrown grass, trees and things of that nature really kind of unkept and then um, more so industrial kind of buildings and things of that nature. And then there were homes still there, but those homes were, you could tell that they weren't being taken care of and, or kept up. And so what happens when the residents start moving? So f- for instance, Johnny Lee Green's family, he sells his home, he sells his home and then the person he's sold it to ends up renting it out so a lot of different people who had homes in the neighborhood sold their homes and or rented out themselves or they sold it to one person Wallace Bibbs who ended up owning a lot of homes in the area he's a black man and he his family lived in the area and he ended up purchasing a lot of the homes as people were trying to sell and leave and he becomes kind of the landlord and is renting out a lot of the homes that are still there what happens over this time period because you've lost kind of the central community and the connections of the community there's no school there anymore um you, you some of the churches might still be there but they might not be as strong anymore you also have a, a number of renters 
squatters for houses where people just left them and they're just there and so now you have squatters you also start to get drugs in the area so yeah. we're also talking it's about also the 80s and 90s of yeah. the, of you know the epi- drug epidemic and so you're getting drugs and so this is what people are seeing when they come into come down Huff Road in the 90s right okay. in the late 90s and early 2000s they're not seeing Blantown was never a wealthy group, but they were a community. But you're not necessarily seeing that anymore. When did Gregor Turk get that studio? How long ago was that? Gosh, he must have gotten it in the early 2000s. I believe it was... 506 says those are the numbers that come to my mind but it was definitely okay. early 2000s yeah. it was funny it's like right about when i moved to atlanta but because mm-hmm. i and i remember again the inklings of it but not a lot of people discussing it mm-hmm. so this kind of i mean it's a separate story but it's an important conversation because and i think it ties into what you're writing about right is this erasure of names of real neighborhood names mm-hmm. and like atlanta's urge to like market everything yes. and especially and you know king i love king and he talks about this mm-hmm. all the time right but it's like west midtown is a make-believe place because it's a bunch of neighborhoods like you're saying and just because you drove through there in 1997 and you can't see anything Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it wasn't actually a neighborhood or a community or a historic place what is your feelings on like the names and the calling calling these places by these names and Mm -hmm. you know keeping that story yes so that was probably the the biggest issue is so I didn't like I told you when I first found out about this like what's a Blantown right when I first heard that Goat Farm Art Center was in Blantown um this was Midtown or West Midtown yeah and all the signage during that time so in the early 2000s you start to have developers coming into the area and they were just coming off of you know Atlantic Station Georgia Tech and all of that and they looked a little further west and they find this other industrial area and they're like yeah we can do something with that and they get the zoning changed I Mm -hmm. didn't even think of this so it's the developers that then switch the zoning back so they can make it residential yes So they get different pockets within Blantown, little by little, between 2006 and 2018. Over time, they start getting the zoning change from heavy industrial to mixed residential commercial or multifamily residential. Talk about me being mad. If you can see, my my face is melting. Like, I just, my, that's incredible. Just, you know, proof that if you got the right amount of money, you can get anything done. Uh, Right amount of money, right skin color as well. You can get a lot of things done, uh, unfortunately. And so they come in the area start building it up you also have the the belt line that's yes, um, proposed, yes. supposed to be coming into that that space as well so lots of reasons why people are like they, yeah. they want to invest there and they start to call it west midtown why not oh. it's west of midtown right but like you said that name means absolutely nothing yeah. it doesn't tell you anything about identity yeah. and there are other neighborhoods other than Blantown around there oh and there's a million I mean right. there's like nine I think I, exactly. ha- I think one day I was like I'm gonna do a West Midtown episode and you know explain it mm-hmm. and then there were so many neighborhoods right. so I was like oh, oh shoot I don't think I can do this in one episode exactly. because people don't realize and I find this actually fascinating. I'm just thinking this on the spot, but you know how like Knight Park and Hell Station Mm -hmm. were white and they still exist. So, and I always say this because it's not always class and income, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because if you compare Cabbage Town, Reynolds Town, you know, same working class peoples and whatever, Mm -hmm. but like we keep the white neighborhood in some, somehow, some way we figure out how Knight, um, Hell Station, Knight Park, again, 
hidden in there, but those houses are there. Mm-hmm. We can tell that story. You know, people, if you find yourself in, you're like, what's this cool little neighborhood right. in the railroad tracks? Mm-hmm. We cannot do that with Blantown. Cannot. And now at this point, you can't even do that with Reynoldstown because it's there's no regulations, or, or historic regulations. Yep. You know, you can build whatever. And honestly, that's what Blantown looks like now. It's mm-hmm. the very modern, skinny townhouses. Yes, wow. so all the new, what you think of new luxury kind of buildings these days are yeah. there now. Definitely very homogenized. Well, you were asking me about your paper that mm-hmm. you wrote at Georgia State. Yeah. Touched on some of this. Correct. And then you kind of wanted to take it and you're taking it into a book. Right. And so, well, the part where Gregor Turk really fits in here really well is he's an artist. And so he created an exhibit to promote the Blantown name and kind of taking pictures around with these luxury of these luxury kind of buildings and so putting the name Blantown kind of over their title headers kind oh, of thing. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah, saying you have like these reclaiming Blantown promotions that he was doing and then the neighborhood association got into it. So this is all these are people, you know, gentrified, uh, you know, wealthier people coming into the neighborhood who are learning about the history. So I start sharing the history with them, go to go to the meetings and share. They get pretty excited about it and so you start to get some signage yes and this is what you worked on as well Mm -hmm. okay they started getting signage and even pushing when new businesses come into the area, they tell them, hey, we're Blantown. Wow. So this is honestly what's so beautiful about everything that's happened in the last five years. So from Gregor Turk being there doing the art piece and kind of being that local historian and then me digging into the history to to add more to this and kind of promoting the name Blantown and then the Neighborhood Association kind of allying with this yeah that now they're saying hey when a new business comes in here if they want our approval to come into this space they need to claim the name Blantown and I just I mean that is like best case scenario you know because I was it's like it's capitalism it's America right you know people are going to buy houses we're going to buy houses I don't hate on anybody who's buying that house right but it is so nice to hear that that once they've learned they're like oh we didn't know this, but now that we know this, this is how it's going to be. Exactly, exactly. So that's what made, because tell where these signs are, or mm-hmm. at least one of the, the easier ones to see is on which street? The There are a number of signs in Blantown, and most uh, one of the most recent sign uh, pieces of signage that went up are on Boyd Avenue. So there's one on Boyd Avenue and two others in streets that aren't they fully used to created. exist. Yeah, they used to exist. Got it. Okay. And so there is a new owner of some land out in Blantown. His name is Hadi Irvani. And he heard this history as well through the Neighborhood Association, through Gregor Turk, and contacted contacted me about um, the history, learn, wanting to learn the history, but also wanting to do something that would display that to new people coming in. And also because the Beltline is eventually going to go into the area, how oh. can we get signage where you could kind of see it maybe from the Beltline? And so he has put up three signs so far that actually are markers with a, a short description or narrative of the history. And so one of those is on Boyd Avenue. So that's the one you can actually see from the street. Okay. The other ones um, you kind of have to like get out of your yeah. car and traverse a little bit. Correct. So then the others are like if you take, so Boyd Avenue, intersects at Culpepper 
and then the street ends. And there used to be streets there. Uh, Irvani is actually trying to re- rebuild those streets and build it out and name them out after some former residents of the area. Oh, so wow. really beautiful. But the signs are out there kind of in the woods. Ready. They're ready. So <laughs> they're ready to go. <laughs> they're ready for Once the people <laughs> are able to get into the space. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I I'm so happy. Yes. Like like there you know it's like half the ha- has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm. Or as happy as it possibly can ha- be. Exactly. You can't it's, bring the people exactly. back. It's a it's um, the happiest we can ask for. And I think it's such a model for other neighborhoods that have a the similar story. Um, tell us about your book, though. Yes. So like, I, my book. I'm excited about it. <laughs> I'm excited about it too. So my book is called Ghost of Atlanta: Cultural Gentrification of the Black Mecca. It, we actually officially have a release date of October 15th of Yay. this year. And it's available for pre-sale. So. Oh, it's already available? <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. Link in the show so, notes. So, you know, Amazon, all those places. And the book connects with some of the things that we've already talked about, has a whole segment on Blantown, Blantown's history. And it's called Ghost of Atlanta, really because I describe my experience of studying gentrification in Atlanta as kind of a ghost hunt. So when you're studying gentrification and displacement, you really learn a lot about things that have gone missing or have been made invisible. And while it's really common for us to study gentrification from the perspective of physical displacement of people, I kind of focus on the displacement of culture. And so one of those with Blantown is the displacement of the name. But what's cool about why the name is so important is if that name, I was connected to the name. It's what... It's what piques your interest. Right, click that link, let me look further. And so it's something about the name that tell a narrative and tell a story and kind of call to you. So I, you know, get a little abstract, like a kind of like a ghost, right? Like something speaking up from the grave, saying, saying, hear me, see me kind of thing. But I also think of Gregor because he has the big, if you ever actually um, go by Gregor Turk Studio in Blantown, he has the big sign out. Um, it's like a billboard to Blantown, yeah, billboard yeah. for Blantown. And before he even knew this Phil history, because I, I, you know, I pulled this history later on, and he already had that sign up. Wow. But he was already kind of connected so to he this felt name, the call to, right? Exactly. And I will, I, I truly also felt the same way. And I think it's because you don't know Bland's surname, right? Right. So you're like. Bland, bland town. <laughs> what does that mean? Right. Like, and I, I again from from the beginning, I was always fascinated, and the amount of people that have asked about it mm-hmm. is one of one of the most asked about neighborhoods oh, wow. because I think everybody also just has that question. It's like that's an interesting name. There's nothing here. <laughs> Why has no one ever told me about it? And right. all those things come together to give you this like magic story. Of exactly. This exactly. So I like to think it, of it a little bit like, you know, the but, So that's one chapter in the book, though. And that's and, just one chapter. And so you're yeah. doing different sort of different cultural stuff that has gone missing, I guess, in mm-hmm. other maybe places of Atlanta. Right. So the other pieces I do are on civil rights movement stories in Atlanta, particularly thinking about how we homogen- romanticize that story a little bit, or a lot of it. And or <laughs> just a little, yeah. Just and a lot of times it's being used to actually bring in investors. 
and God. using kind of this romanticized story of MLK and Coretta Scott King to bring investors into places. And so I talk about that. And then the third big story is on redevelopment in the West End along the, or yeah, in the West End along oh, the Beltline yes. there. Where the where the whole complex is yes. now. So the oh, kind yes. of craft beer Disneyland yes. that we have uh, on the Beltline there. And so the West End, at least for the last 60 to 70 years, has been predominantly black neighborhood um, and, and really a center of black culture in Atlanta. And this kind of craft beer um, complex comes into the space and it's really different and if you know about kind of the culture of alcohol prohibition why there's prohibition atlanta race right all oh, these things yep oh um, yeah and how they're connected oh, yep. to race it yeah. kind of makes an interesting connection to craft beer being located in west end at this time and this moment and how it in some ways makes some of that romanticizes that history but also keeps people from if you, if you kind of walk down the belt line uh, in that area, you don't really, you might not immediately recognize that on the other side of this is a whole black neighborhood, whole black culture, museums, yeah. and all the like that are kind of hidden to you when you're on the belt line and you're oh my. walking. Okay, this is the second episode. This is the next, the next episode we're recording is about that. I did not yes. know that was that chapter. I cannot wait to read that and then have you talk it's about it. It's the longest it. chapter in because, the book, No, actually. because, I mean, I never thought of it that way. And I and I do know the prohibition details, which mm -hmm. I think, like, no one, no one knows that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's never, I never put those things together. In, and it's blowing up. My brain is blowing up. Yes. So that's what, yeah, wow. So super interesting stuff. So, yeah, that's that's the book. Um, and that's Blantown. Yay. This was worth the five years of waiting, I swear, <laughs> because I, I always, I think I just always had a feeling that I didn't know how to do Blantown. And then when I met you, I was like, oh, this is it. Like I don't know that I know how to no, do Blantown. You do. And your listeners probably will find out a no, lot of little no. areas to find I, more information <laughs> on. I think it's worth saying too is you did not go to school for history right, right. you are not you, you are not you are also what I joke is I'm an amateur researcher you're an amateur researcher I mean this yeah. is not your communications major mm -hmm. so that blew my mind and it also that's why you know I come and I talk to Eli's class a lot about that like democratization of the archives right. and all think about that you just had a week off but you mm -hmm. had to spend that week in five or six physical different structures right. if you didn't do that we wouldn't have this Correct. so it's a public service and it's so important and it's just like it is so special that you did that so yeah thank you thank you for that I try to tell my students be curious everything yes. is not Googleable no um, and, you and do you need can, to look into things. And look at this like you I think kids think everything has been discovered yes. like you said mm -hmm. but I'm like no no I even discovered something the other day like like there is still so much to be figured so out much. especially when you're talking about a marginalized group of people mm -hmm. and it's like you got to go out there and do it so like yes Yes, this yes, was yes. so amazing. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I just really appreciate every time I get a chance to tell the story. And um, hopefully some listeners out there are able to connect yeah. more if dots. If have more stories, yeah. we, we talked about this. If you're a descendant, you have more stories. Or, you know, you want her to come talk to you about, you know, your group or whatever. Model this for their neighborhoods. Just uh, I'll put your contact information in the show notes. Yes. So there you have it, the story of Blantown. I have the link to pre-order Raina's book in the show notes, as well as her email address if you want to contact her, if you have questions or extra information or descendant information or any of the things we talked about in the episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you want to support the work. 
I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.